Just a note, this episode of Left Behind contains talk of death, including suicide, that may not be appropriate for some audiences. Lieutenant Commander Henry Goodall squinted his eyes against the harsh Philippine sun, searching intently as his boat rocked and bobbed with the waves of the China Sea just offshore Bataan Peninsula's western coastline. His boat and another nearby were small motor launches that the sailors had outfitted with makeshift armor and salvaged machine guns to create small battleships. The crews manned their battle stations, waiting for Goodall's orders. They scanned the cliffs in front of them, looking for caves. No, not for caves, but for the soldiers lurking inside those caves. Enemies, invaders, the remnants of a Japanese infantry landing unit that was intent on sneaking behind the American lines on Bataan. But American and Filipino forces had been prepared for the invaders, both on land and by sea. While the Allied ground forces did their part and pushed the invading soldiers over the cliffside, Commander Goodall, a handsome former football player with dark hair, a firm chin, and a chiseled jawline, ensured that any Japanese soldiers escaping or hiding in the cliffside caves wouldn't be a threat. The day's hunting, as the sailors called it, had been good. 33 hits, and it seemed that the cliffside caves were cleared of all would-be invaders. They'd been out their work since 8 a.m., and the hot sun beat down mercilessly on the two small metal motor launches. It was time to head back to base. But just then, four Japanese dive bombers emerged from the sun's blinding light, raining bullets on the two vessels. A gunner's mate, still at his machine gun, emptied a barrage of bullets at an attacking plane. He brought it down, at the cost of his own life, dying while still sitting at his gunner position. Bombs dropped around Goodall's boat, crashing into the water, detonating and blowing holes in the bottom. Shrapnel and other debris hit Goodall on his feet, severely wounding him. Beach! Beach! He ordered the crews of his little makeshift navy. The crews piloted the small crafts to the Bataan Beach as quickly as they could, fighting against the continued onslaught of the Japanese planes and the unforgiving coastal tide. They landed, grabbed their fallen comrades, and sought cover. Status report, Goodall called to his men once the threat of strafing had passed. The sailors checked pulses and counted casualties, three dead, four wounded. The able men gathered tree limbs, which they used to improvise stretchers for the wounded, including Goodall. Then they hacked and hiked their way through the heavy jungle until they reached the small supply road. From there, they turned south for the 10-mile trek back to their home ship anchored at Bataan's southern tip. A truck soon approached down the dusty road. The sailors waved their arms overhead, and the truck slowed. Hey friend, can we get a lift back to Maravellis? A sailor asked him. Jump in, the driver answered, jerking his head toward the truck's rear. The Navy men loaded their improvised stretchers into the back of the truck and jumped in as the truck began rumbling down the winding dirt road back to the USS Canopus. The day's events had incapacitated the two makeshift battleships, marking the end of Lieutenant Commander Goodall's small Navy brainchild. And now Goodall himself was wounded and out of commission. But that small navy had been instrumental in protecting Bataan and preventing the peninsula's early fall to Japanese soldiers. And it was just one of the audacious and creative strategies that would earn Lieutenant Commander Henry Goodall not one, but two of the U.S. military's highest awards for valor. This is Left Behind. Music
about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. In the last episode, I shared the story of Naval Commander Frank Bridget and his ragtag naval battalion. This episode picks up where that one ended, with Bridget's second-in-command, Lieutenant Commander Goodall, who took military creativity to new heights. Or perhaps he made military creativity a thing, because is military creativity a thing? I'm not sure. However, Lieutenant Commander Goodall's creative and downright audacious ideas may have bought General MacArthur and the American forces in the Philippines time that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Let's jump in. Henry William Goodall was born September 2, 1900 in Kansas. Henry was the youngest by nine years of the five children born to William and Christina Goodall. One of those children had died before Henry was born. Henry's father, William, who worked as a carpet weaver, was from Virginia, and his mother was a first-generation German-American. Now, here's something I thought was interesting. Some historic records say that Father William was born in Virginia, and some say West Virginia. William was born in May 1862. West Virginia didn't become a state until a year later in June 1863, when it separated from the Confederate state of Virginia and formed itself as a Union state. So, although I haven't found exactly where Father William was born, I do wonder if he was from the area of Virginia that became West Virginia. Well, regardless, Father William and Mother Christina were in Salina, Kansas by January 1886 when they married. And their signed marriage record specifically states that they, quote, are not nearer of kin than second cousins, close quote. So genetically speaking, that's a good thing to know about your parents. I always say it's better for your family lines to look like a tree rather than a wreath. William and Christina probably came west during the influx of settlers to the Salina, Kansas area, as it became a hub for agriculture and industry after the train was built. Father William died when Henry Goodall was seven years old, and all the older children worked to support the family. In 1910, his mother sewed for private families. A 20-year-old brother was a laborer doing ob jobs, and an 18-year-old sister worked as a stenographer in a sales office. Henry grew up to be a handsome young man with a tall, slender build, gray eyes, and dark hair. He attended Washington High School in Salina, where he became a star football player. During his senior year in 1918, he was a 160-pound quarterback and tackle. You can see that senior year football picture on my website. The link is in the show description. The school's yearbook stated, Raz was largely responsible for successful end runs of the season by his interference. Skinned elbows or hard knocks did not daunt him. He can always be relied upon to do his best in the backfield. Raz was apparently his nickname. I'm not sure where that came from. I know in his military years he was sometimes known as Hap. Ten days after his 18th birthday, on September 2, 1918, so while he was still the high school football star, 
Henry registered for the U.S. draft. World War I ended in November 1918, so he wasn't in real danger of being called up to serve. Still, at least as a mother, I think it would be nerve-wracking for your high school senior to register for a draft while a war is raging overseas. After high school, Henry worked at a poultry house, at least for a time. A little more than a year after graduating high school, he joined the Navy in September 1920, which is likely when he began school at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. He graduated from the Naval Academy in 1924 and was commissioned as an ensign. In 1929, he married Eugenia Strickland, and they spent the 1930s in various locations, including San Diego, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., as Henry worked his way up the naval officer ranks. The couple welcomed two children into their family during the 1930s, and Henry achieved the rank of lieutenant commander by July 1939. That's equivalent to a U.S. Army major. By December 1941, Lieutenant Commander Henry Goodall was the executive officer, that is, second-in-command, of the submarine tender USS Canopus. As a submarine tender, the Canopus sailed with several patrolling submarines through Asiatic Pacific waters and supplied them with food, weapons, chemicals, and anything else a submarine or its crew needed. In fall 1941, the Canopus pulled into the Cavite Navy Yard on Manila Bay just south of Manila, the city, for extensive overhauls. It was going to become better prepared for war with upgraded armor and new anti-aircraft guns. The ship had finished its refurbishments and was anchored in the bay just outside of Cavite when the war started on December 8, 1941. As such, she and her crew escaped destruction when Japanese aircraft bombed Cavite on December 10th. Instead, they had moved some 10 miles north to one of the docks at Manila Harbor. And, because looking like a warship had become a detriment, they painted the ship brown to match the docks and spread fishing nets over her, in an effort to disguise the ship as a fishing boat. It seemingly worked. The ship wasn't attacked during the several weeks it was anchored at Manila. Or perhaps the Japanese planes had bigger fish to fry. When the war started, most other U.S. Navy ships left the Philippines. But the Canopus remained in Manila Bay to take care of her submarines that patrolled the Philippine waters. She and her crew became a sort of floating, mobile submarine base of the Philippines. When the rest of the U.S. forces withdrew to Bataan in late December 1941, Canopus joined them. They anchored the ship in the small harbor at Mari Velas on Bataan's southernmost point. The crew attempted to again hide the ship by anchoring in a small cove and redisguising her as part of the jungle, with mottled green paint and tree branches tied to the masts. The disguise worked for a few days, but Japanese planes bombed it on December 29th. I covered this bombing in episode 12. Thankfully, that bombing didn't destroy the ship. In fact, she was seaworthy again in just a few days but her seaworthiness wouldn't matter because the submarine she tended soon withdrew from Philippine waters. The Canopus itself couldn't leave because of the increasing Japanese naval blockade of the Philippines. The ship's captain, Earl Sackett, explained, When the last of the submarines had pulled out just before the new year opened, we were left with something of the feeling of a mother when the last of her children has grown up and left the home fires to battle the world alone. Nothing would seem more useless than a submarine tender with no submarines to look out for, but we were soon to find that there were orphans aplenty to be adopted. There were many small navy ships which were also stranded by the tide of war ebbing toward the south. 
These needed constant repairs as well as additional equipment for the task ahead of them. The word also got around to all Army and Air Force units of the well-equipped shops which could and did accomplish miracles of improvisation, and these groups were not slow in making full use of these facilities. Again, the men of the Canopus could feel that they had a major share in the new mission, to hold the baton. So the ship's machine shop and repair crews got to work fixing and making weapons and other needed items for the fighting men on Bataan. During the day, most sailors remained off ship so that in case of direct attack, there would be as few casualties as possible. It was good thinking because the Japanese weren't done with the Canopus quite yet. In early January 1942, just a week after the first bombing, the ship was again attacked by bombs. Captain Sackett said, Again, the closely bunched bomb pattern blanketed the ship, but again, only one missile made a direct hit. This time, it was a quick-acting fragmentation bomb which struck the side of the towering smokestack and literally sprayed the upper decks with small fragments. The gun crews, which had ducked behind their shields at the last instant before the bombs landed, had little protection from splinters coming down from above, and three-quarters of them were wounded, fortunately with no fatalities. No serious fires were started, but the upper decks looked like a sieve as hundreds of pieces of shrapnel had pierced the light plating. The crew surveyed the damage and soon learned that a second bomb detonated underwater, damaging the ship's underside. Each side of the ship had been pierced with dozens of fragments just above the waterline. Below deck, the ship's plates and rivets had given away and water was leaking in. But miraculously, the old girl as the crew fondly called the ship, wasn't scrap yet, and Lieutenant Commander Henry Goodall had an idea to make her baton's best kept secret. Days later, a Japanese scouting plane, nicknamed Photo Joe by US servicemen, flew over Southern Bataan looking for American ships that had survived the earlier bombing runs. The pilot was encouraged, an abandoned American ship tilted in Maravellis's small harbor Bomb holes peppered her deck, and smoke rose from the hull. The previous air attacks had succeeded. This American ship was no threat. Except, well, there was something the Japanese scout didn't realize. The problem was, he trusted his eyes. And really, who could blame him? That was his job, right? Scouting, looking, seeing? But that's where things go wrong, isn't it? Because, you know, looks can be deceiving. In fact, the decrepit-looking USS Canopus was a hoax. Lieutenant Commander Goodall had realized they could no longer pretend Canopus was a fishing ship or part of the jungle, but they could pretend that the earlier attacks did their job and that the Canopus was useless. So, under Goodall's direction, the crew used the bombing mess to make the Canopus look as abandoned as possible. They made the old ship list, that is, tilt, in the water and placed the cargo booms at odd angles. They hid oily rags in smudge pots near the blackened bomb holes so the smoke rose out of the ship for several days. During the day, Japanese scouts saw a destroyed, abandoned ship. But during the night? Well, Captain Sackett explained it best. Every night, the abandoned hulk hummed with activity, forging new weapons for the beleaguered forces of Bataan. Evidently, the Japs were completely deceived because only one half-hearted attempt was made a week later by dive bombers to finish off the faithful ship, and that was driven away without damage by our anti-aircraft guns. These had been taken off the ship and mounted on the hills nearby so as to not draw further retaliation to the vessel. 
Goodall received the Navy Cross, the Navy's second highest award for heroism in combat, in part for his actions on the Canopus. The citation reads, Despite the fact that the USS Canopus had been damaged by bombs and was partially beached at Maravellis, the work of repairing weapons and facilities was carried out at night and during non-flying weather. In these very important maintenance tasks, and in and about the section base, Lieutenant Commander Goodall was exceptionally resourceful in manufacturing parts for extemporized weapons. So, while the Japanese saw a decrepit, junked, abandoned ship, Lieutenant Commander Henry Goodall was successfully hoaxing the enemy and providing creative ways for the Americans to keep fighting. But his outside-the-box thinking wouldn't stop there. No, Commander Goodall was just getting started. With the Canopus relatively safe from further attack and relentlessly supporting onshore troops, Lieutenant Commander Goodall found his services needed elsewhere. A Navy aviation commander named Frank Bridget noticed that while Maravellis at the southern tip of Bataan and the American front at the northern end were both well guarded, the Japanese could easily attack and cut off some 20 miles of vital communication and supply road within short distance of the coast. Cutting off that road would be disastrous to the American and Filipino resistance. So, as I described in the last episode, number 13, Bridget assembled the Naval Battalion, a somewhat ragtag team of sailors, naval aviators, and Marines. Lieutenant Commander Goodall became the battalion's second in command. As Commander Bridget feared, Japanese troops landed along Bataan's southwestern coast at Longus Gawain Point, mere miles from Maravellis and made their way inland toward the communication road, where the naval battalion met them and held them back. But instead of fleeing, the Japanese hid in cliffside crevices and caves along Longus Gawain Point. Their presence continued to threaten the American front line. Captain Sackett recalled, The Jap landing force was down, but not yet out. The rugged cliffs under which the remnants had taken refuge were honeycombed with crevices and caves washed into the rock by wave action in ages past. Practically inaccessible from the landside, it was suicide to try to ferret out the desperate Japanese, who still had plenty of ammunition and food to stand a long siege. But, and I'm sure you've already guessed this, Goodall had an idea. Attacking the problem from a sailor's viewpoint, Goodall conceived a plan for clearing out the hornet's nests by shooting into them from the sea. Here again, the Canopus repairmen rose to the occasion. Conversion work was started on three of her 40-foot motor launches to make them into Mickey Mouse battleships, armed with heavy machine guns and a light field piece, and protected by makeshift armor fashioned from boilerplate around the engine and gun positions. Ever resourceful, the Canopus crew took some of the machine guns from destroyed American aircraft. How's that for reusing and recycling? As soon as the first launch was armed and armored, Lieutenant Commander Goodall led the first mission. Captain Sackett continued. No sooner had the first experimental model been finished than the enthusiastic crew, led by Hap Goodall, put their brainchild into commission and started out. It was a seven or eight mile cruise by water to Longest Gawain Point, but they made two round trips the first day, blasting scores of Japs out of their caves with gunfire. As evidence of their success, they brought in two prisoners alive but dazed, and three others which had not survived the return voyage. Our Canopus crew at last felt amply revenged for the loss of seven shipmates who fell during the land fighting with the naval battalion, as well as for the six who died in the first bombing of the ship. They were now veterans and could look any man in the eye. 
With Longos Gawain Point cleared, the Mickey Mouse Navy was called upon to help another group of Allied soldiers. When Japanese forces had landed on Longos Gawain Point, they were actually in the wrong place. You see, they were part of a larger invasion unit that was supposed to land about 10 miles north at Quinaun Point. But between awful maps, a treacherous tide, and US Navy patrols, only a portion actually landed on Quinaun Point. The Japanese forces on Quinaun Point had better success than those on Longos Gawain. They established a foothold in the point's dense jungle, using the foliage and landscape to their advantage. A battalion of Philippine scouts, a U.S. Army unit made up almost entirely of highly trained elite Filipino soldiers, engaged the Japanese, but the heavy growth made moving and fighting difficult and dangerous. A Philippine scout commander explained, The enemy never made any movements or signs of attacking our force, but just lay in wait for us to make a move. And when we did, casualties occurred, and we still could not see even one enemy. After a week of fighting, the scouts and the Japanese invaders were at stalemate. When the scouts were able to push the Japanese back to the coast, the scouts incurred heavy casualties. On January 29th, a full week after the Japanese first landed at Quinaun, two additional companies of Philippine scouts joined the fight. They helped continue to push the Japanese forces back to the sea, but still at the price of heavy casualties. Some estimates say as high as 50%. Now keep in mind that the term casualty refers to wounded men as well as those killed in action. Still, 50% is horribly high. One serviceman observed, The scouts had occupied 50 yards more of the high jungle above the bay at terrible cost to themselves. Their casualties had run about 50%. The sight and stench of death were everywhere. The jungle, droning with insects, was almost unbearably hot. By January 30th, after more than a week of fighting, the Philippine scout commander explained that those scouts who were still able to fight were dead tired from loss of sleep and exposure. Finally, on January 31st, the U.S. Army was able to send tanks to help clear the point. The infantry and tankers pushed the Japanese back to the tip of Quinaun Point to an area about the size of a football field. The Allied line on one side of the Japanese a cliff edge on the other. I'm gonna pause here. The Japanese were finding that defeating American and Filipino forces on Bataan was harder than expected. The first several weeks of the war and the initial ground invasion of the Philippines had been easy conquests for Japanese forces. But once withdrawn to Bataan, the American and Filipino forces were putting up a determined fight. An NBC News report in January 1942 had this to say about Filipino forces. The Battle of the Philippines continues unabated. There are no new announcements from the War Department this morning. But even the Japanese foresee a long struggle before they subjugate the island of Busan, the stronghold of the Philippines. Tokyo newspapers are warning the Japanese public today that guerrilla warfare probably will continue for some time. That's one way to explain the Japanese need for large troop concentrations in the Philippines after the Japanese claim a victory for those troops will be needed. Not only is there a possibility that General MacArthur can hold out for a long time, but also the Filipinos themselves are not easy to whip. That's all for now. The Filipino resistance seems to have surprised the Japanese. So back on Quinaun Point, where the Philippine scouts and the tanks had backed Japanese forces to the tip, something strange happened. Witnesses later reported that the Japanese soldiers screamed 
yelled, ripped off their uniforms, and leapt off the cliff. In a 2020 article for the National World War II Museum, Pacific War expert Richard B. Frank said, Japanese servicemen regarded surrender as unthinkable. Virtually every Japanese unit fought near to annihilation, a record unparalleled in modern history. Voluntary surrenders were rare. More often, prisoners were only those Japanese left by wounds or debilitation too helpless to take their own life. Virtually every Japanese unit fought to near annihilation. Think about that for a moment. The depth of the indoctrination in Japanese servicemen of Japanese military rhetoric and honor is hard for me to understand as a 21st century American. It was hard for mid 20th century Americans to understand. Furthermore, as author Richard Frank wrote, Japanese troops and civilians were told that Americans would inflict unlimited atrocities on captured servicemen and civilians and then exterminate them. I've seen a similar sentiment recorded in several sources as I've researched for this podcast. I believe it added to the no surrender at any cost mentality of Japanese troops. Later in the war, Americans saw the same behavior in civilians when the U.S. invaded Saipan, a Japanese island colony in the Pacific. Author Richard Frank went on to explain, Several thousand Japanese civilians took their own lives rather than be captured by U.S. forces. Wrenching newsreels widely seen by Americans showed scenes of Japanese families committing suicide together, including death leaps from cliffs. So the Japanese troops leaping off Quinan Point seems to go along with this theme. Other Japanese soldiers climbed down the cliff to rock ledges and caves, where they already had prepared positions. Still other Japanese soldiers were down on the beach, so apparently below the cliff. American and Filipino forces on the cliff continued to shoot at the enemy forces. One observer later said, I'll never forget the little Filipino who had set up an air-cooled machine gun at the brink of the cliff and was peppering the crowded beach far below. At each burst, he shrieked with laughter, beat his helmet against the ground, lay back to whoop with glee, and sat up to get in another burst. Quinnown Point was cleared, but there were Japanese holdouts in the cliffside caves that continued to pose a threat. Also, the Japanese, although outnumbered and unable to advance or retreat, refused to surrender. Surrender, as discussed earlier, being dishonorable and unthinkable to the soldiers. At first, the scouts tried various methods to route out the Japanese holdouts, like lowering boxes of dynamite with lit fuses over the sides of the cliffs. After those methods didn't work and ended up with heavy casualties, the U.S. Army finally called Lieutenant Commander Goodall's Little Navy back into service. The two Mickey Mouse battleships, augmented by two small whaleboats carrying airmen from the Naval Battalion, arrived around 8 a.m. on February 8th. The boat's gunners started firing at targets marked by white sheets that scouts had lowered over the cliff to show Japanese positions. Goodall's men were successful, hitting at least 33 enemy invaders that day. Then the whaleboats landed the naval battalion men, who made sure the enemy was eradicated. The Japanese landings on Longest Kauaian Point and Quinnown Point ended in the complete destruction of 2nd Battalion of the Japanese 20th Infantry. 300 Japanese were lost on Longaskawayan, 600 on Quinaun, and the remainder died when their landing barges were torpedoed by American patrol boats. 
Japanese General Hama, who was over the Japanese forces in the Philippines at this time, said that the battalion was lost without a trace. On the Allied side, casualties were heavy as well. The battles at Longescawayan and at Quinaun caused more than 500 casualties, including at least 160 dead, the majority of whom were Philippine scouts. And the Japanese continued to attempt landings upon Bataan's western coast. Collectively, the landings and subsequent battles at Longescawayan, Quinaun, and other coastal locations are known as the Battle of the Points. Goodall received the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions during the Battle of the Points. Regarding his efforts at Quinaun Point, the citation reads, During the entire operation, Lieutenant Commander Goodall maintained an exposed position and directed in detail the maneuver and fire of all the boats in his detachment. Despite intense hostile fire from the beach, and repeated bombing and strafing attacks by enemy dive bombers. Returning from their mission on February 8, 1942, Goodall's small navy encountered four Japanese dive bombers. The planes dove for the boats, while U.S. sailors returned fire with onboard machine guns. Japanese bullets and bombs rained down, punching holes in the boats. Goodall, his feet seriously wounded, ordered the American boats to shore and, according to the Distinguished Service Cross citation, calmly directed the care of other injured men. The survivors fashioned stretchers and carried their brothers-in-arms through the Bataan jungle to the communication road. There they found an American truck driver who gave them a ride back to Maravellas, the Canopus, and relative safety. The wounded Goodall ended up on Corregidor, the island fortress off the coast of Bataan, where American and Filipino forces held out for another month after Bataan fell in April 1942. He became a prisoner of war on May 6, 1942, when the Japanese invaded Corregidor after months of siege and sustained bombing. So started Goodall's 33 months as a POW. During that time, he joined thousands of other American and Filipino POWs in a forced march through Manila en route to Kambanatuan POW camp, about 70 miles or 112 kilometers north of the city. This was a different march than the infamous Bataan Death March, and we'll get into both of those marches in future episodes. Goodall likely spent the majority of his time at the Cabanatuan POW camps, although I found few records of his POW movements. Cabanatuan POWs endured starvation, diseases, beatings, and torturous work camps. Nearly three years after capture, Henry Goodall found himself incarcerated at Bilibin Prison in Manila, as was fellow Canopus sailor John Burke from episode 9. The war had turned in the Americans' favor, and there had been heavy fighting, mainly by air, for several days. The hungry POWs at Bilibid eagerly awaited the Yanks with tanks and steaks and cakes. Around 6 p.m. on February 8, 1945, a rifle butt knocked a hole in one of the prison's wooden shutters. American forces surrounded the prison walls, curious to know what was inside. They had expected to find Japanese forces, but were surprised to find and liberate more than a thousand POWs. Henry Goodall remained in the Navy after liberation. After the war, the Goodall family moved around the U.S., likely following Henry's stations, to Norfolk, Virginia, Florida, Illinois, and even Texas. He retired from the U.S. Navy in 1954 as a rear admiral. In the 1960s and 70s, retired Rear Admiral Goodall was a highlighted guest and speaker at several national conventions of the American Ex-Prisoners of War organization. 
He served for a time as the honorary commander of the organization. The American Ex-Prisoners of War organization began as the Baton Relief Organization in New Mexico on April 14, 1942. That's just days after Baton fell to the Japanese. Under the motto of, we will not let them down, this group was organized by parents, wives, and girlfriends of servicemen on Baton to send relief to the POWs. After the war, freed POWs took over leadership of the organization and the name changed to American Ex-Prisoners of War to include vets from the European theater and eventually all former POWs, civilian internees, and their families and descendants from any war. While the conventions were a great chance for former POWs to get together with their prisoner buddies and share memories and souvenirs, they also worked on resolutions and advocacy for former POWs. In 1977, when retired Rear Admiral Goodall was a featured guest, the group intended to address issues such as amnesty for Vietnam draft dodgers and cancellation of the B-1 bomber project. One of the organization's biggest wins was the 1979 Congressional Proclamation signed by President Jimmy Carter proclaiming the third Friday in September as National Prisoner of War and Missing in Action Recognition Day. The organization exists today, headquartered in Arlington, Texas, and is a service organization that advocates for former POWs and their families. Henry Goodall died on August 6, 1988, near San Diego, California, just one month before his 88th birthday and only three months after his wife's passing. He was survived by his two children and five grandchildren. In the end, the hometown football star returned to Salina, Kansas, he rests in Gypsum Hill Cemetery near his parents and two siblings. Now let's step back to February 1942, when Lieutenant Commander Goodall was fighting Japanese landing forces from his Mickey Mouse battleships. At the same time, American and Filipino forces on Bataan were fighting and defending at two fronts, one on either side of the mountains that run the length of the central Bataan Peninsula. They were hellish battlefronts, and the Allied forces suffered many casualties. And of course, with many casualties, there came battlefield hospitals and battlefield nurses. Nurses who up until they arrived on the Bataan Peninsula were totally untrained and unprepared for nursing in battlefield hospitals. But these women were tough, hardworking, and beloved by the servicemen they served. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Henry Goodall's story on my website. The link is in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon and Connor Davis. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next week with a nurse who started the war on Bataan and ended by following General Patton's army into France and then into Germany. Thank you.